Hello, and welcome to another episode of Significant Stories, the history of science podcast from Harvard University. This is episode three of a three-part series on health and healing. I'm CJ Passarella. I'm Nick Jager, and today we're going to be talking about the historical process of discovery of what is known in traditional Chinese medicine as mawang, or ephedra. As we've heard in our first two episodes from Maya, Judy, Chris, and Camille, questions of what it means to discover a drug and who is credited as a discoverer have serious social, legal, and ethical implications for who gets access to the drug and, of course, who can profit off of it. In other words, who owns a drug? Yeah, so by looking at Mawang, we hope to really shine a light on how these processes of discovery have taken place historically and really why questions surrounding the ownership of drugs and medicine can become quite complicated. We also hope to emphasize the importance of recognizing the origins of medical knowledge and ways of knowing found across the world by really highlighting the variety of discovery processes occurring through a really long time frame. But before we get any deeper into the history of the plant and its medical use, of course, it would be helpful to talk a little bit more about what this plant is actually like. So now for this portion of the episode, I want you to relax, take a deep breath, maybe even close your eyes and allow yourself to visualize the following. You are an experienced hiker, truly seasoned, and you also happen to be quite interested in all things botanical. As a new challenge for yourself heading into the new year, you decide to take a trek through the Himalayas. Don't worry about how you funded it. One day, midway through your journey, you stumble upon, of all things, the Mawang plant. The avid gardener that you are, you're able to recognize the plant easily, recalling that it is a shrub native to China, Pakistan, Mongolia, and northwestern India. You reach for the plant's journal in your back pocket and immediately begin to take note of the plant's atypical features. What an unusual bush, you write for yourself. Low, straggling, and evergreen perennial, you say under your breath, writing furiously. This shrub keeps its leaves during the winter. How lucky! And its leaves, how strange they are! Few and far between on the plant, spiraled around the branchlets and only around a single centimeter in length. How short! Oh, and the stems! These stems are the plant's key medical components, you remember from your traditional medicine encyclopedia. You describe them as tough but flexible, and marvel at their role as the source of photosynthesis. You tower over the plant, which is only about a foot high, although you know from experience that some can grow up to four feet. Right as you get ready to go, you notice something on the plant that resembles berries. You snap a photo, admiring their beauty, before realizing that those berries are actually poisonous red cones, and you put them back in fear. Close call, you think to yourself, as you go about your way and resume your hike. So this plant, this rather unique plant, was first discovered in China thousands of years ago. 
before undergoing rediscoveries in Japan and the West that eventually made it one of the most well-known and well-studied drugs of the ancient world. A particularly early treatment in the traditional Chinese medical canon, it was referenced in the Shennong Benkao Jing, which is considered to be a foundational book in Chinese medicine written around 200 CE. Even earlier than that, Shennong, a Chinese emperor who lived around 2700 BCE, cataloged 365 herbs by their bitterness. Mawang was included and it was classified as medium. It was known at the time to treat asthma and common colds. And it's believed that for those uses, it has been a part of Chinese medical knowledge for up to 5,000 years. Yeah. The way that this drug was administered in TCM, a person would take a handful of crumbled stems from dried ma wang plants and make them into a tea. If you want to envision these dried stems, picture the head of a broom. You can hear that now. That's the sound of these broom heads or stems being broken as they are mixed into the tea. They are hard and coarse and a brown green color. They were dropped into cold water, which was then boiled and strained. This process was repeated every two to four hours until symptoms improved at the same interval that one would take Dayquil. While this first discovery dates back thousands of years, the Chinese understanding of this drug did not stop developing after this first discovery. In the 16th century, quite a bit later, Li Xichen's famous dispensatory, the Pensao Kung Mu, highlights its uses as a circulatory stimulant a diaphoretic, an antipyretic, and an antitussic. Clearly research was ongoing and the discovery process continued to evolve as more uses were found. And for those listeners who are like me and have less medical knowledge, a diaphoretic is a drug that induces sweating, an antipyretic is a medicine that reduces fevers, and an antitussic is a cough suppressant. Exactly. And while this development of understanding is happening, the earliest known date of export for Ma Wang was also in the 16th century, where we found documentation that indicates that dried stems were shipped to Japan. So now Ma Wang has moved out of just China, where it has been in use for thousands of years by now, but is still undergoing research and it's being sent over to Japan. Despite that, Japanese research into Mawang did not actually get started until the late 19th century. Now, this second process of discovery in 19th century Japan was instigated by Nagayoshi Nagai, a scientist and the first person to isolate ephedrine from the Mawang plant. Nagayoshi and a colleague of his, Kei Mura, continued to study ephedrine and its impact on animals. Interestingly enough, even after this process of discovery was facilitated in Japan, it took another 20 years for other Japanese scientists, H. Amatsu and S. Kubota, to suggest medical uses for ephedrine, likening the substance to tyramine and adrenaline, and suggesting that it was capable of relaxing bronchial smooth muscle as a potential treatment for asthma. It's particularly interesting that the physical material was passed from China to Japan without really any knowledge of its medical uses. 
And at this point, Ma Wang is still virtually unknown to the wider world, including the West. Despite Nagayoshi spending part of his education in Berlin, the reason why this information and his research didn't really spread was because all of the papers were written in Japanese. There were limited Japanese speakers in the West at that point, so rather than the open collaboration that we hope to see today, instead what we got was a third, again fairly independent discovery of Ma Wang, this time taking place in the West in the 20th century. So, first and foremost, it's worth noting that the insular nature of this research process, which is really something quite different than what we hope to see today. Now, this third discovery process was kicked off by Ko Chen and Carl Schmidt when they took up posts as lecturers at the Peking Union Medical College in 1920. Both were trained in physiological techniques for measuring blood pressure, heart rate, and bronchial muscle tone in the United States, and they were unaware of Nagai and Mura's findings or any of the other research from traditional Chinese medicine. And so, they started off with dogs and cats, and of course ended up coming to a lot of the same conclusions that were made in the previous two discovery processes, which should not be surprising because remember, the 19th century Japanese researchers also focused on its impact on animals. In any case, their paper in the Journal of the Society of Experimental Pharmacology and Therapeutics lit up the pharmacological world of the West. This followed the discovery of adrenaline, which was a somewhat effective, but also somewhat limited treatment for asthma. Ephedrine was thought to be a better and easier to administer version of adrenaline. Not surprisingly, this excited corporate America. And from 1924 to 1930, there was an onslaught of patents being filed in the United States and Europe for the preparation of the plant extract and for the synthesis of the active alkaloid. An American pharmaceutical giant ended up trying to buy up all of the ephedra supply in China in an attempt to corner the market. I think it's also worth mentioning that in 1920, Merck started marketing ephedrine in China, which marked the beginning of mass production of ephedrine in China. From 1926 to 1928, ephedrine exports from China to the West grew from four to 216 tons. For reference, Merck is a German founded company that has since migrated its headquarters to the United States. This is the story of Ma Wang an interesting and unique shrub with quite a history of its own. If you're from the West, I imagine that you were more likely familiar with the name Ephedra or Ephedrine as opposed to Ma Wang. In many ways, this speaks to the way that scientific discovery is valued. Priority is given to the synthesis and isolation of Ephedra from Ma Wang, as opposed to valuing the organic discovery process that occurred in China when the existence of a plant was turned into a wide-ranging medical understanding. There were numerous patents in the West on the process of extraction and synthesis of ephedrine, despite all of the treatment information having been discovered in China thousands of years earlier. In sum, we really hope that this brief oral history of the plant gives you an idea of how plants and medicines can be rediscovered by different cultures in very different ways. Our contemporary and global medical infrastructure may already seem complicated, but in many ways, this complexity 
only expands beyond the surface level. As one delves deeper into the history of the development of medical knowledge, there is so much more to be learned. Modern medicine is often thought of as modern in the sense that it was developed in the last couple hundred years. However, this is far from true. Modern medicine, and in particular, modern Western medicine is deeply rooted in a global tradition that incorporates knowledge from many other global traditions. As we have come to conclude this, this podcast, I wanna reference a paper by George Basala, a Harvard graduate in the history of science. I believe this paper will shine a light on why many people conceive of the modern medical infrastructure in the aforementioned manner. George Basala's 1967 paper titled, The Spread of Western Science, essentially attempts to outline a methodology for how science has spread across the globe. He attempts to create a heuristic that emphasizes how science supposedly originated from Italy, France, England, the Netherlands, Germany, Austria, and the Scandinavian countries. Basala's thoroughly criticized paper claims that scientific countries, i.e. the Western countries, diffuse science to the non-scientific countries, i.e. the non-Western countries. The leading criticisms of Basala's work highlight how his paper ignores the fact that European science cannot be isolated in the manner that he attempts as there is no pure European science, but rather a polyglot mix of varied scientific traditions, heavily mixed with Middle Eastern and Asian and other traditions. Basala further ignores the cross-cultural exchange. And as we enter the conclusion of this podcast, I wanted to bring up Basala's work because as much as it has been highly criticized since its publication, many of his sentiments still prevail, both, both overtly and subliminally in our culture. The complexity of the modern medical infrastructure is such that it is easy to turn a blind eye to the true history of our current medical system, which is deeply rooted in medical knowledge that was developed around the globe. In our first episode, Maya and Judy brought you a segment on biopiracy, which we hope is able to highlight some of the most devastating effects of this Eurocentric perspective. Next, we brought you to Djibouti with Camille, who in his interview with Chris was providing his deep knowledge of the sophisticated medical tradition in Djibouti. And finally, CJ and I hope that this episode of our podcast was able to offer you insight into the diverse processes of discovery that have come to compose our modern medical infrastructure. Thank you for being here with us. And we hope that this podcast was able to offer some more insight into what modern medicine actually means. Yes, and on behalf of everyone that has worked on this Health and Healing podcast, thank you all so much for listening and for wrapping up this discussion with us. We certainly had fun. We hope all of you had fun too. And until next time, that's it from us.